you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well endowed. This episode is going to be all about why having a will is a really good idea. Not only can it provide you with the peace of mind that your estate and affairs will be handled the way that you want them to be, but it also saves your family and loved ones an incredible amount of pain and hassle during what's sure to be a very difficult time for them. It's something a lot of us would prefer not to think about. And some people have taken, let's say, very unique approaches to marking down their final wishes. That's right. Like Alexander Moore, the focus of our first story. Here's guest producer Chris Chang Yen Phillips with his story about a Calgary man who prepared his last will and testament in a very unusual way, and why you might want to get some professional help about getting your estate in order. So we're about to open the, a box, a long box. Ooh, this is this is his will. <laughs> it looks like uh, a, a a square, a, a rectangle of wood. Yeah, it's almost like a it's a T shape is what it is, and that was part of the problem, because if you look at it, it's not your standard piece of paper that a will is typically written on. And I'm in a quiet conservation room behind the scenes at the Provincial Archives of Alberta, taking a peek at a real legal will that a soldier from Calgary wrote a century ago, on a wooden drawer in a traveling chest. It ended up at the Provincial Archives because, well, it's a will, and they're the ones that keep those. My name is Allison Frake. I'm a textual records conservator at the Provincial Archives of Alberta. Or I could just say paper conservator, which is definitely not applicable in this case. <laughs> what does a conservator do? Conservator. Uh, well, basically, we are primarily concerned with the physical condition of our records and so I work with the archivists to identify pieces that are in need of more than standard rehousing and, and preventive conservation. So the man's name is Alexander Moyer and he was a policeman in Calgary so that was his line of work at the time that he passed away. He was a member of the 10th Battalion of the Canadian Expeditionary Force and he uh, died on active service we don't know exactly when he died, but they know they were able to trace that he disappeared and was never seen again after the Battle of Kitchener's Wood, which is part of uh, the Ypres. This is World War One. First World War, yes. Uh, and so that took place April 22nd to 24th, 1915. And so after that, he was presumed dead for official purposes. Um, war was declared on 4th of August, 1914, and he signed up on the 8th of August. Wow. So he didn't waste any time. And I think maybe because he was a Scotsman, that it may felt have, very personal. It, it felt very personal for him. What, uh, uh, interesting that he had the presence of mind to write something before yes. he left. Yes. And I don't know if it's because he was a carpenter and he had an affinity for wood, but he decided the chest would be the best place to put it. Oh, there's a note on the side. You will find... Yes, so it says, you will find the lid nailed down and locked. 
So maybe this was the outside, and that was the clue to get into the, to find the will. Because we don't know how it was positioned inside the chest, we don't really know. (laughs) But this is all that remains of the chest. Is this all that remains of the chest that we have? This looks like a drawer that maybe you would put like buttons or like a belt in. Yeah, it looks like something uh, like an organizer kind of section for a for a chest. So, may I touch it? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. By the center. Lift it up. Yeah, lift it up by the center because that's the strongest part. Oh, it's catching. Yeah. Oh, sorry. There you go. Wow. It's pretty light. It is. It's very light. It's probably pine because that would have been used for the sort of carcass of the of uh, trunks and things like that. It wouldn't have been a very expensive or heavy wood because, of course, it was meant for travel, too. So it, it shouldn't have been a very heavy wood. I like that you can see. What are, the, are these nails? Or I think those are nails. Yeah. Uh. Which makes it difficult to handle. Where I'm always afraid somebody's going to gouge themselves on it. But you can see, because it's been a court record, it's got labels on it and tape on it and and sharpie. And sharpie. <sighs> now, at the time that he died, they didn't know he had a will. Which brings us to a point: there's no point writing a will if you're if nobody knows you have one, <laughs> right? Um, you can have a will. I think people either don't want to write a will or they write a will and then hide it because they don't want anybody to know what's in it. But again, when you're no longer around and you want to make sure that something is, your estate is dispersed the way that you want, make sure it's findable. This was found two and a half years after Alex Moyer died. The will was discovered after a relative that Alex lived with in Calgary sent his traveling chest out east to his mom. Just picture what that moment must have been like. She's going through this chest, maybe going through his belongings, a not very pleasant evening, I'm sure. And she's there with two of her daughters, so they would be Alex Moyer's half-sisters. And so they're looking at the chest, and they realize that part of it comes out, and then they see this. The upshot of it is that he leaves the estate to his mother. This kind of will, would it be accepted today if someone had something like this as as the closest thing they had to a will? Well, this is considered a holographic will. Which means? means It doesn't mean it's a magical picture in a piece of glass. It just means that um, it's not signed or witnessed, but it's clearly written by the, the person whose estate is being referred to, and it, it clearly states who it is that is supposed to uh, accept it. He actually owned two blocks of property in Calgary, and he owned property in BC. And so his final uh, estate, I think by the time all was said and done and everything was properly appraised, was over $2,000. In 1921, that's a substantial sum of money, and that's not something to be dismissed easily. It would have been much easier for his mother if he just had a will (laughs) that he had maybe given to her or given to an attorney uh, to hold on to. I mean, he could have written out a will and given it to his uncle or whoever was in the house or, you know, some other friends. I I don't know. It was hard to tell. I mean, given the events, nobody knew what was going to happen at the time. And so I guess he just picked whatever seemed the most solid option. Literally solid. Literally solid. 
thanks to Alison Frake, a conservator at the Provincial Archives of Alberta, for telling us about the drawer will left behind by Alexander Moyer. So that's a great example of what not to do when you're writing your will. But how should we go about it? Well, every October, Edmonton Community Foundation hosts Wills Week to help answer that question. Several lawyers volunteer to give free sessions all about how to create a will, what they can do, and how they can help you, your estate, and your loved ones save money and time. It's a little like Wills 101. We invited Allison. Hi, my name is Allison McCollum. I am a partner at the law firm of Witten. And Mike. I'm Mike Simons. I'm a partner at a law firm called McQuig de Rocher uh, here in Edmonton. To chat about estate planning and why you should have a will. And an enduring power of attorney. And a personal directive. Yeah, all three documents are really important. They ensure you get what you want, even if you can't speak for yourself. Or if you're not around to. Having these documents in place can be a real gift to your loved ones, and that goes beyond just assets. Allison and Mike have volunteered at many Wills Week sessions in the past. They sat down for a -a tete-a-tete to chat about how these documents can help you leave the legacy you want and help your family put that legacy into action. Let's listen in. Hey, Mike, why don't we get started by talking a little bit about why it's important to have a will? I have a couple of ideas on this. Sounds great. I know this is often really intimidating for people, and people often think they need to have absolutely everything planned before they get their will done, but the important thing is to get started and to work with someone who can help you finish it, so you don't need to have all the answers before you start. The main reason why it's important to have a will is because that is the last document that tells the world what your wishes are, and it makes sure that what you want to happen can come about and happen. I agree. It's, uh, it's so important, and it's, uh, it's a really easy thing for people to put off getting done. But uh, if you don't have a will, uh, there's a, a set of default rules uh, that sometimes work okay, but often don't work okay. And it's important for people to understand that without a will, they lose the right to make any decisions about uh, what happens to their assets and estates and how people are taken care of in their families. Mike, one of the questions I get often is, if I don't have a will, does that mean the government gets all my stuff? Well, yeah, I get that question too. And uh, and uh, it would be very challenging for the government to get everything. You'd have to have absolutely no descendants whatsoever. But, um, but generally speaking, there's a set of default rules that fall, uh, follow along your family lines on who would get what. Um, they are, you know, sometimes they work okay, but often uh, people are very upset when they find out that that estranged family member that they don't ever talk to is getting a quarter of their estate. Well, I shouldn't say they're upset because they're gone, but everyone (laughs) else is upset. That's fair. I've also seen some cases where some family members, maybe who aren't estranged, but are struggling with um, either mental health issues or addictions issues, for whom receiving a lump of money all at once could be really damaging, will also receive when there isn't a will. So being able to have the opportunity to plan for that. um, And something I often tell people is you want your estate to bless your beneficiaries and not harm them. And so by doing your will, you control what that looks like as opposed to leaving it to those default rules. That's, that's a great point because uh, a lot of times people uh, just assume that, uh, strangely enough, that the government is going to take care of their family with their estate. And, and unfortunately, that's not always what happens. No. Um, I think it's also important to have a will um, when you have young kids 
because your will is where you're going to identify guardianship so that you get a say in terms of who's going to look after your kids. I know that without a will, that can become quite a costly and drawn-out process. So if you can just imagine young kids parents have passed away and now we're fighting over who's going to take care of them, that can be just additional trauma. So when you have young kids, it's really important to have that will just to clarify what's going to happen as well. Yeah, that that's true. It's it's often a trigger point and when people start having a family and, uh, you know, that's the time when they should be looking at estate planning and things like life insurance and disability insurance because uh, when you're young and single and footloose and fancy free, you don't have those responsibilities. But as soon as you start having people depending on you, Mm -hmm. that's the time when you need to, unfortunately, take things a little more seriously. Oh, the joys of growing up. Yeah. Adulting, right? Yeah. It's uh, better than the alternative, though. (laughs) This is true. You mentioned the word estate planning. And I know sometimes people get really confused when we talk about estate planning um, and they think it's just the will. There's some other things you want to consider when you're doing your estate plan, right? Yeah, that's a great point, Allison. It's... uh, I always call it sort of a three-part project, right? There's a a will, which uh, is most people understand. It decides uh, who's in charge of your estate and who's going to get your estate. Uh, And then there's two other documents, which sometimes I think are almost more important than a will uh, uh, because they affect the people before they die. And so it actually has more impact on the person making it than a will does. And those are an enduring power of attorney and a personal directive. Do you want to talk about that maybe and what those are? Sure. So the enduring power of attorney um, is essentially the document that appoints somebody to deal with your money and to deal with your stuff. So if you don't have capacity, then the enduring power of attorney is the document that says, this is who I want to make financial decisions for me, and this is what they can do. Without a power of attorney, nobody can go to your bank or deal with your house or any of those things without getting a court order, which is much more expensive and time-consuming, and you don't get to pick who the person is. So by doing your power of attorney, you're picking the person that you want to be in charge of your financial assets. The personal directive is equally as important, but rather than dealing with your money, it deals with you and your kids. So that guardianship we were talking about in your will, you can appoint a guardian in your personal directive. So you have some kind of crisis and you're unable to care for your children. Then the personal directive kind of steps in and can appoint someone to do that. It's also the document that tells the doctors, this is what I want to do. Do I want life support to be maintained or terminated? Do I want to be an organ donor? All these really important questions that if you don't have the ability to tell somebody, again, you're getting a court order. It may not be the person you want. It's time-consuming and expensive. So when you're doing your estate plan, you sit down and you think about all these things all at once, and it's not nearly as depressing as this sounds, is it? Well, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's not fun to talk about. And, and people, I think that's, that's, it's a bit of a taboo subject, right? I, I remember we had, I had a former colleague who was trained out east, and uh, I asked him about his client and whether he had an, uh, an estate plan. And he said, well, well, I've never asked him. I said, well, how can you not ask him? And he said, well, when, when I was trained as a young lawyer, I was told you never ask your clients if they have a will because you're telling them they're going to die. I said, well, he is going to die because <laughs> everyone does. And, and so I think it's, it's actually our responsibility to ask clients mm-hmm. and, and people if they have a plan. I mean, I tell friends and family, I don't care if you do the plan with me. Go see Allison. Go see somebody. Just get a plan in place because uh, I'd rather they have something than, uh, you know, it's, it's that old cliche, uh, an ounce of prevention is a heck of a lot better than a pound of cure. 
I would agree. And when I'm talking with people about their plan, um, sometimes it goes even beyond just the three documents, right? Because when you're thinking about your plan, you mentioned earlier things like life insurance, um, what kind of assets we have. You may have a small business. What's going to happen to that business? There's a lot of things that you need to plan for, and not all of them are going to just be your will. So having that plan and understanding, I have a family farm, Am I selling it when I die? Are my children going to farm it? I have a business. Who's going to take over? Is it my business partner? Is it my spouse? Is it my children? A lot of times people are very hardworking and very busy doing what they do very well. So they don't stop to take the time to make the plan. And so I find that when you're talking to someone about doing their estate plan, making sure that people think about all of those aspects too and put everything in place and most importantly, talk to the people who are part of the plan. So. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you touch on a great point in terms of it being an overall plan. Sometimes I've, I had a client recently say, well, why do you need to know everything that I have? And uh, Allison's laughing, by the way, because she gets this too. And, and it's as lawyers, it's kind of frustrating because mm-hmm. they think we're just being nosy. Mm-hmm. And it's so important because... There's, there's planning that can be done outside the will, like you talked about life insurance and designating a beneficiary or, you know, my wife and I have our house as what's called joint tenants with a right of survivorship. So she owns that house automatically upon my passing. It's not something that has to go through the estate. So there's all sorts of things that uh, we can do in terms of planning that's outside of a will. And, and that's often something that, because uh, I, I bet you, Allison, have you ever been asked about people writing their own wills? And maybe you can talk about that because that's something that gets missed often on those subjects. Mm-hmm. So I do have people, I've I've had to deal with several holograph wills, holographic wills where someone's written it themselves and then they pass away. Um, and technically, a holographic will can be legal. So you can write your will yourself in your own handwriting, and that is a legal and valid document. So I can just type it up and fill in the blanks? No, you want to write it in your own handwriting. Oh. So, and the law is always changing with this, but this is one of the issues with will kits, is they're just fill in the blanks. So if they're not properly witnessed, they won't accord with the law. So you can have a situation when you do your will yourself. Number one, did you do it legally? Number two, if you didn't do it legally, what exactly do you have that's legal? All of those questions result in more legal expense after you pass away. So the money you saved before, you pay after. Um, and the other, I think, biggest problem is that you're not getting any advice when you do these things. So a lot of people think a will is just a fill-in-the-blank document. I just put my spouse's name here, my kid's name's there, and I'm done. And part of what is important about doing your plan or seeking advice is that um, people who specialize in wills and estates have seen a lot of things. We have more stories than you could possibly imagine. Um, So we're better able to give you advice on things that you might want to consider. So things to avoid, things that are going to work, things that might not work, so that your specific situation is properly identified in your estate plan, because it's not one size fits all. I think I rarely have two things that are the same. Everybody is a little bit different. That's a a really good 
point. And, and sometimes, I mean, I have told somebody to do a holographic will in their handwriting. When one of my friends phoned me at 10.30 at night and he was getting on a plane at 5 a.m. the next morning with his wife to go to Las Vegas and he'd never got his estate plan done, notwithstanding the numerous times I suggested to him, uh, I said, great, get a piece of paper and write it out in your handwriting. And, of course, he said, okay, I've got my laptop open. I said, no, put your laptop away. Find a piece of paper, and et cetera. Yeah. And so... Th- there are the exceptions to the rule, right? And, mm-hmm. and when someone's getting on a plane four hours later, sometimes that's the best you can do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the flip side of that is I had a fellow once ask me, well, how do I deal with my investment portfolio in a holographic will? And I kind of thought, well, you know, if you have an investment portfolio, you might want to invest in a proper estate plan. And often, I think, you do as mm-hmm. well, we end up working with, in more complex situations like that, people's other advisors, mm-hmm. like their accountants, investment advisors, mm-hmm. and, and helping get that advice. Mm-hmm. This takes us back to Chris's story about the will that was written on the wooden drawer in a traveling chest. The one that wasn't found until two years after the author died, leaving his family without guidance. And, as we've just heard, holographic wills often don't capture the complexity of your estate or your wishes. So getting professional advice can be a big boon. But that sounds expensive. Not bothering with a will or just doing a holographic will may seem cheaper, but it turns out that investing in estate planning now can save your estate and your loved ones a lot of money. And time. Time can be a very precious resource when you're grieving. Allison and Mike discussed why investing in a plan is a good idea. Uh, I know people are often intimidated by the cost of going to see a lawyer. This is going to cost me a lot of money. I don't understand why this is valuable. An analogy that I regularly use with people is think about how much money you spend on your car insurance every year, right? So you're probably spending about $1,000 a year per car that you have. A 1000 If you don't have any young children driving it. <laughs> My son writes his learner's permit in three weeks. <laughs> exactly. So... Um, When you're going to get an estate plan, uh, you're going to find a range of costs out there. But if you budget between $1,000 to $2,000 to get your will, power of attorney, and personal directive done, then you're going to be in good standing subject to the specifics of your situation. So in terms of an investment, it's no more really than investing in your car, and you do that on an annual basis. No, and, And the other thing is... Uh, and I tell clients this because I, I sometimes pound the table about those other two documents, the Enduring Power mm-hmm. of Attorney and Personal Directive. Uh, if you don't have those, so I've unfortunately had situations where someone calls and uh, maybe the husband's had a stroke and he's lost capacity and the wife has to take charge of the affairs and there's no documents in place. Uh, the starting point on that is probably $5,000 to make a court application mm-hmm. to get a guardianship and trusteeship order. So... I mean, it, it's double, triple, even more, and I've seen it take over a year to get that mm-hmm. in place just because of the system that's there. The court doesn't like to take people's powers away. No. Whereas if you do it voluntarily, it's it's a lot more economical and you actually get to pick the person you want. Yeah. I would I would echo that, Mike. I know it's a lot simpler if you sit down and do it and make the choice. And I think that what people don't always understand is if you don't have a will and you pass away, you've got the guardianship issue, who's going to take care of your kids, but there's also nobody with legal authority to do anything until you get a court application. So if you have a will, you don't necessarily need to get a court application to deal with your estate. It depends on what kind of assets you have, and that's... uh, 
it's a case-by-case situation. But if you don't have a will and you have any assets, um, you're more likely than not going to need to get a grant of administration. You're going to have to go and get a court application. So you will necessarily have to expend some time and money and likely significant delay because the banks won't talk to you until you get that grant. You're not going to be able to... um, file the taxes. There's a whole bunch of things that you have to do when somebody dies. And without the will, nobody has the authority without the court approving that authority. And I, and I think a good point on that is that uh, it's not that people won't talk to you because they're being jerks. No. They won't talk to you because they don't know who has the legal authority to get that information. And in this day and age, information is power. And the banks, uh, the insurance companies, et cetera, Mm -hmm. they're scared to give information to somebody who doesn't have an appointment, whether it's in a will or whether it's by the courts. And so, I mean, I have one recently where there's a house and the insurance lapsed and it lapsed before the fellow passed away. And there was no will, and that house has been uninsured for, yeah, I know, for for over a year. and Yikes. and And nobody wants to give insurance because nobody knows who has the authority to get insurance. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of when someone's acting on an estate, part of their job is to preserve and protect the assets of the estate. But if no one's appointed, it's, there's no one that's entitled to protect those assets. I often will tell people... If, um, Mike, if you walked into my bank today and asked for my money, I sure hope my bank says no to you, right? Well. I know you don't, but I I do. (laughs) But if I get hit by a meteor tomorrow and you walk into my bank and ask for my money, I still hope they won't give it to you. It would sure make my husband upset if that happened. So that's kind of the basis. If you think of that, it's not like you said that the banks or the insurance companies or anybody's trying to be mean. They're really just trying to protect your stuff. So if you don't make a will and tell people what you want to do with that stuff or who has the authority to do it, nobody knows. And it costs you more. I I mean, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, dealing with these estates where there isn't a will and you're worried about assets getting getting uh, diminished and you're worried about, you know, the, the one of the jokes I make with clients sometimes is, you know, there's no urgency to dispose of the assets of the estate. I mean, if the person who died had a truck full of lettuce and it had to be sold within two days, uh, and you had a will, theoretically, you could go, I don't know who would buy a truckload of lettuce, but theoretically, you could go and sell it before it all wilted away. Mm-hmm. But without a will, that lettuce is just turning into that goopy slop that you find in the bottom of your fridge once in a while. I think you need to clean your fridge more yeah, often, maybe. Mike. <laughs> um, I also think it's important when you're thinking about um, your will and, and where you want things to go, you have to remember that there are certain legal obligations you have. So whether or not that's to your spouse or your children to make sure that you fulfill those. But then there's also the choices that you may want to make. So if you have um, a family friend who you would like to give a gift to, or I know there are some people who have employees who are long-term employees and they'd like to benefit them, or they have charities that they regularly give to or would like to give to um, when they pass away. Without a will, none of those people have any ability to get any of the funds. All those default rules only apply to family members. They don't apply to friends or charities or anything like that. So that's another thing I um, advise people to think about if they have those goals. That, that's that's uh, very true. I think sometimes for people, I, I mean, sometimes for people, it's the money. The, mm-hmm. There's no two ways about it. It costs money. And yep. if you never die, you don't need to spend the money, right? 
But I think for a lot of people, it's just the, well, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I think I should, my, my, my husband wants to appoint, uh, his brother is the guardian. I sure don't want that. Yahoo is the guardian of our children. I want to appoint my sister. And so they've talked to Allison, and Allison's got all their information, and and but they can't agree on that, and they're not sure because they think they should split it between uh, this charity and that charity, and nobody's told them about the community foundation yet, and uh, and so they're stuck. They're they're mm-hmm. they're in. I call it analysis paralysis. Yes. You ever have that, Ali? I have. <laughs> and and then what do you do? Because as lawyers, mm-hmm. I mean, we you know remind people, we tell them they need to come in and sign. But I mean, I've probably got a half dozen wills sitting in my cabinet that are unsigned. So sometimes what I'll do is I um I make people come back and we talk about it. I find sometimes that some people need time to process their decisions, so we'll have a a meeting where I talk to them and give them information that they go away and think about, and then other people I find need to process through conversation. So depending on what any particular person needs, um, sometimes I find having uh, a third meeting, so kind of one in between signing in and getting instructions, where you just go through and you talk about the pluses and minuses, the pros and cons, what is this going to look like? I do remind people that all those Hollywood movies where you appoint two guardians and they fall in love and become the new parents of the children, not exactly how it works. (laughs) So don't set up your best friends hoping they're going to get together. I think that was Lady and the Tramp, wasn't it? With the spaghetti <laughs> like and that. The... <laughs> um, so sometimes people just need to recognize that you don't need a perfect will. It needs to be good for right now and that we can change it. So once you write a will, it's not set in stone. It's not something that's going to be like that forever. So for my families that have young children, I recommend that every three to five years they come back and see me. And so then I'll reach out and I'll talk to them and say, uh, how's everything going? And you can ignore me and my feelings won't get hurt. Or you can reply and say, everything's fine. Call me later. And that works too. Or you can say, hey, we discovered that my son has this disability and I think we may need to do something different in my will. Or all sorts of things that can happen. So I tell people, you want to make your will based on what's happening right now with the best information you have now, as opposed to trying to make it perfect. Because if you try to make it perfect, you will be there forever and you're never going to get it finished. But just because it's not perfect doesn't mean that we can't continue to work on it over time and make sure that it's tailored to what you need at every different stage of your life. Yeah, I heard a great expression the other day, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I agree. And I just thought that rang very true. I always tell clients, worry about good today and perfect later mm-hmm. because uh, it just gets stalled and, mm-hmm. and a good will is better than no will. And when they're done, they are so relieved. I know. I always get the, oh, thank you. You know, I was dreading doing this and I just feel so good about getting it done. Mm-hmm. And now... And, and now I'll never die. No, uh, but <laughs> and now now I can at least have that. And, you know, it's a gift. It's mm-hmm. a gift to the family it really is. to get this done because you're gone, right? Mm-hmm. I get hit by a meteor and I'm gone and I don't have to deal with the mess that I left behind, but everyone else does. And I'll tell you, there's no worse way to remember your loved one than by the mess that they left behind for the people to deal with. I have definitely seen relationships um be strongly negatively affected afterwards where people did not have a plan communicated to them um, and so they didn't know what to expect someone passed away unexpectedly and it can really forever impact what someone 
how someone experiences their relationship. And that, uh, that little bit of time and that little bit of money can make all the difference. Absolutely. I, w- I want to come back to one thing you mentioned about reviewing wills and keeping it current in the three to five years. Mm-hmm. I think I, I use the same thing every three to five years. The other thing I tell people, though, is, is or life events, mm-hmm. right? So births, deaths, marriages, etc. Mm-hmm. And, and very often people remember that at bad times, but they don't necessarily remember it at good times. And so, which which makes sense. But But so I always like to just sort of remind people and Generally, that turns into every seven to ten years with my clients, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, you know, if, if nothing bad or good necessarily necessitates a uh, change, then that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. I don't think you need to change it for the sake of changing it, but it is something um, that your circumstances will change as life progresses. Absolutely, absolutely, and and. I'm sure you, like I, we, I try and draft the document for longevity. I build in contingencies, mm-hmm. but you can't build in everything. Uh, otherwise, you'd have an unworkable document. The other thing I wanted to come back to is you talked about, you know, people, the responsibilities. You have responsibilities to a, a spouse or children, um, but sometimes that can go a little further than just a kid who's, uh, who's turning 18 or you talked about disabilities. Do you want to talk a little bit about you know, what other responsibilities a person has? Because in Alberta, probably a lot of people don't know, we have testamentary freedom, mm-hmm. right? A person can give to whomever they want mm-hmm. subject to their obligations under the law. Right. So we all have an obligation to spouses, and that includes uh, married or common law. So you have an obligation in your will, and if you don't provide adequately for that person, your will can be challenged. So when you're doing your will, that holographic will that you write yourself that you don't get advice on, you may be offside that obligation. Additionally, we have responsibility for our children, and those are our children under the age of 18, or between the age of 18 and 22, if they're still living in our basement and going to school. Um, If they live in your basement past 22, you're off the hook. But this can work negatively because when people get remarried, they don't realize that their adult children have no claim on their estate. So you have, in second marriage situations, it's really important to get proper advice to make sure that everybody's on board with where assets are going. The other thing to keep in mind is that if your child has a disability and the law talks about being unable to earn a livelihood by reason of mental or physical disability, and I've seen instances where drug addiction or alcoholism would qualify an adult child as being unable to earn a livelihood, that person may have a claim against your estate. And so uh, when you're looking at where you're giving things, you really have to make sure that you understand what those obligations are to avoid a costly court application after you pass away. Yeah, it, it can really, I mean, that proper planning can really uh, serve to benefit everybody mm-hmm. because after the fact, I, I, once in a while we do, I sometimes call it post-death estate planning where we're trying to fix something mm-hmm. that wasn't addressed ahead of time. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you can do some things, mm-hmm. but often you can't. And uh, and then uh, as soon as you're into, you know, court applications and uh, disagreements between people, uh, it gets really, really challenging. So going to a lawyer to help create these documents can help you ensure your will meets the complexity of your estate and can help navigate any legal obligations or obstacles that you may not know about. But what about those other documents we mentioned earlier, the ones that are in effect while you're still alive? 
We often think of estate planning as only relevant to one's end of life, but the power of attorney and the personal directive are there to help you while you're still around, even for us youngins out there, whether it's a temporary event or a long-term need. Here's Mike again. So, so maybe I'll talk about the enduring power of attorney. Uh, so we call it an enduring power of attorney. We also call it an EPA. Sometimes it's called a power of attorney. Sometimes it's called a POA. They're often the same thing. Uh, and uh, it appoints someone to handle those financial matters when someone has either lost capacity or if they choose that they want someone to help them. So they can do that immediately uh, and get assistance. Sometimes people have capacity, but they just aren't very mobile or they're just disinclined to pay their bills anymore and they want one of their kids to deal with it. You know, I, I wish I could do that. But, uh, <laughs> but and, and so, so that document can take effect either on an incapacity or by choice and it stays in effect until the person with capacity revokes it or the person passes away. Now there's a bit of a, a, a linchpin there because as soon as someone passes away, that enduring power of attorney ceases to have any force and effect. So sometimes you'll have people saying, well, I have the enduring power of attorney. Dad just passed away. Uh, I'm going to go to the bank and pay all the bills, et cetera. And we say, well, sorry, the bank's not going to accept your, uh, your power anymore because the person has died and that power then switches to the executor of the will. And so uh, that said, it's really important. And in fact, I won't do an estate plan for clients without an enduring power of attorney and personal directive because uh, for the, the, they take, I'm going to say, less effort than a will in terms of document preparation, less information than a will, but, uh, but they are so vitally important to me that uh, I don't ever want to have a client come back and say, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you tell me about this, et cetera? It's just, it's not worth the hassle, the grief, the cost of not having that. Maybe Ali can talk about the personal directive in that vein. Sure. And, and just following up on um, your desire to not do just a will and not a power of attorney and personal directive, I agree. I also find that once you've um, discussed all the information you need for your will, you have most of the information you need for your power Absolutely. of attorney anyway. So it, it it makes sense to do them together. It's the most efficient, both from a time perspective, a cost perspective way to do it. Uh, I also just wanted to add a little bit about having them at any time. Uh, I recently came across a family where um, high income earning spouse had a stroke at age 40. And so this is not dementia. This is not my grandparents that need it. This is everybody, right? So now we have a situation where you had somebody in the prime of their earning where everything is, is in their name. Without that power of attorney, you would have all of the challenges of court that we've talked about to date. Um, and so it makes sense to have them right away. And, and I would emphasize very strongly, even if you choose not to do a will, Get your power of attorney and personal directive. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really important. So with respect to your personal directive, one of the things that I find most helpful with this document is it starts the conversation. A lot of people don't want to think about what's going to happen if I'm in the hospital and I can't give instructions. It's a scary thought. It feels really powerless, and it's not something that you ever want to imagine happening to you. And so, again, I would talk about 
it's your loved ones that are making these decisions. And so I've had people occasionally say, well, I'll just trust my spouse to make that decision. And I say, yes, but if you love your spouse... Let your spouse know what you want because your spouse is going to be grieving. Your spouse is going to be in shock. It's a traumatic experience for your loved ones to deal with you in this situation as well. So again, from the responsible, loving perspective, if you're uh, giving them some guidance and saying, this is what's important to me, then they'll be able to act knowing that they're honoring your wishes, which is going to give them a greater peace of mind. So like Mike says, For a couple of extra minutes, you can get all of this done together, and then there's clarity. And the lack of clarity is one of the biggest challenges we have. It's confusing when you're in the hospital having to make all of these decisions. Neurologically speaking, your brain doesn't work the same way when you're under stress. And when you're dealing with this, you don't have the same capacity that you would in a regular situation. So having had the conversation, having made the people talk Um, with the person they're going to appoint under their personal directive so they know what's important to them, I think is one of the most important aspects of the personal directive is having that conversation. And I find that very often it's either the parents don't want to talk to the kids about it because that would be admitting that something could happen to them, Mm -hmm. or more commonly nowadays it's the kids that don't want to talk to the parents. I don't want to talk to mom about dad about that because that means something could happen to them. Mm -hmm. And that lack of transparency is is horrible. But a lot of times that's that big white elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about. And it's so important. You're right, Allison. It's so important for people to communicate that. And it changes, mm-hmm. right? It changes from age 40 to age 60 to this health or that health. And, and that's fine. But you still have to have those horrible conversations so that everyone knows what people's wishes are. I often tell people they can blame me. So you come and we do the estate plan, and then I say, okay, you got to talk to mom, dad, sister, brother, spouse, whomever it is, but you can blame me. The lawyer's making me do it. Okay, go ahead. I'll take all the blame for that conversation just as long as you have it, because that's the important part. That's great. I'm going to tell my clients to blame you, too. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that even, Mike. (laughs) You know, we hadn't talked about this, Allison, but but I wonder if we should also, because I get this question all the time on the personal directive. Well, now there's medical assistance in dying. So I want that in my personal directive. Unfortunately, the law's evolved, but it's not evolved as far as people want, has it? No, and I, um, I've changed my, my notes now, and I specifically express what is and what isn't medical assistance in dying. And I think it's really important for people to know your personal directive can only come into effect if you've lost capacity. And the law says that you can only request medical assistance in dying if you have capacity. So what's really important to understand is if you want, if you have a terminal illness or, or there is a situation where you qualify for medical assistance in dying, you have to be the one to choose that for yourself. You can't appoint someone else to choose that for you. And your personal directive only comes into effect when you can't make choices anymore. That's a great way of putting it because people come to us and they think that that's something they can pre-choose. And uh, it's it's obviously a very touchy and, and sensitive subject. And uh, either fortunately or unfortunately, it's not something we deal with any at this stage because uh, it falls more into the medical side than the legal side. I would agree. Allison, I really enjoyed our conversation today. This has been great just talking about estate planning. I know it's not something people really enjoy talking about, but I think it's so important and uh, and it's a bit of a taboo subject and it's important for people to talk about. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us? 
Um, I think my final thought would be that people can be really intimidated by doing this. And my hope is that by hearing our conversation, they realize it's not a big, scary thing and that you can go out and get help and have somebody help walk you through all of this so that all of the scary things we identified today won't happen and you can get that peace of mind. So be brave. Come and talk to somebody. It'll all be okay. Those are some great comments, Ali, and I, I think it's really important for people to come out and, and listen. There's some great speakers coming up at Will's Week with the Community Foundation, and hopefully people will get out to those sessions and learn even more than we talked about. Thank you so much to Allison McCollum and Mike Simons for sharing their expertise. I feel like I learned a lot. I also feel like I have more questions. Well, that's perfect, Andrew, because Will's Week is coming up from October 7th to October 10th. All sessions are free. And I'll say it again, this is free advice from estate lawyers, and they also take time to answer all of your questions. That sounds great. So listeners, if you want to catch one of these free sessions, head to our show notes for a link to the schedule. And you can learn a little bit more about Allison and Mike there too. Before we go, we want to tell you about the Young Edmonton Grants. If you're between the ages of 13 and 24, you could be eligible for funding. Right. These grants range from $500 to $3,000 and are for projects that are initiated, led, and organized by young Edmonton and area residents. To find out more, go to ecfoundation.org or check out our show notes for the link. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. If you liked the episode, be sure to share it with your friends. And if you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are a big help. And you can follow us on Facebook, too. That's a good place to see pictures and share your thoughts. Thanks again for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Honking and Andrew Paul. Until, Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.